Chapter Eight: Obedience from Subject to Heir. In the new framework of the Restoration, how do we understand obedience? We can begin with one paradigm-bursting question that has lain scripturally embedded and seemingly unnoticed for centuries, waiting to detonate with a power to rewrite the nature of God's parenthood and our relationship to divine parents. The scriptural setting is the story of Job and his bewilderment in the face of what seems to him a suffering that is clearly unmerited. In some ways, the story is reminiscent of Adam and Eve in the garden. Because it revolves around a condition of cognitive dissonance, in the Genesis story, Adam and Eve are told to replenish the earth, but they are warned away from the only means of replenishment, the tree of knowledge. This is an apt situation if the purpose of this founding myth is to teach us what is at the heart of the human condition: the difficult and generally painful need to choose among competing values. And competing versions of the good. Even our divine parents are not exempt from such anguish dilemmas, as when their respect for our agency competes with their desire to spare us pain. Job finds himself suffering his own kind of cognitive dissonance, competing truths he cannot reconcile. God is just, but Job is suffering unjustly. The root of his problem. As Elihu will at last explain, is his deficient understanding of God, the commandments, and the nature of sin and obedience. Like so many Christians of a thousand years hence, Job assumes that the point of obedience is to satisfy an arbitrary ruler who punishes any breach of his law. Job's friends confirm him in this view. Who ever perished, big innocent? asks Eliphaz. Job cannot locate any evil in his conduct, but Bildad objects. Doth God pervert judgment, or doth the Almighty pervert justice? But thou knowest I am not wicked. Job counters. Without dissent, his companions insist that Job is deceived. If man is righteous, God is pleased, and as a just God, He will bless him. If man sins. God is angry and will punish. The entire paradigm framing the dispute shifts seismically with a question asked by the newcomer Elihu. He appears like a wandering prophet to at last intercede, and with his question cuts through the common currency of sin and obedience, and rocks the foundations of this theological paradigm. To Job and his earnest but erroneous friends. Elihu declares, "I would like to reply to you. If you sin, how does that affect him? If your sins are many, what does that do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him, or what does he receive from your hand?" The implications of Elihu's rhetorical questions are astonishing, disconcerting, and initially beyond our ability to absorb. He is deconstructing any idea we, or Job and his companions, might have of God as a sovereign ruler. Our sins do not diminish God; they do not detract from God's majesty or divinity. Neither does our obedience enhance God's glory. Our actions, be they evil or righteous, 
have no necessary intrinsic bearing on God. This knowledge is to turn the universe upside down. The whole language of God as sovereign, a deity who must be appeased, a jealous God whom we fear to offend, from ancient cultures through Hebraic conceptions to the present day, has infiltrated our sense of what it means to worship, to fear, to obey. Elihu's rhetorical question calls all such conceptions into doubt. A subject who defies his king threatens his sovereignty. A vassal who disrespects his ruler undermines his authority and offends his liege lord. Judgment and punishment must follow. This is the unmistakable but perverse way in which Christianity has long taught of God, sin and obedience. One preacher of this school proclaims, It should be noted that in any repentance and returning to God, there has to include a real sense of personal offence towards God. Sin is slapping the face of God. When we commit a sin, it is primarily a sin against God. The essence is in reality a deep awareness of how much we have hurt God. Clearly, in some sense, God does care about our choices for good or ill. Clearly, in some sense, God does respond to those choices. What Elihu is calling into question is the why behind God's response. Elihu is suggesting that God's relationship to us is not one predicated on obligation or sovereignty. God does not owe us blessings when we obey and God's station does not require punishment when we disobey. If this suggestion is true, then epithets like sovereign, ruler, king, are not the most apt names for God's role and relationship to us. Therefore, obedience, its meanings and motives, might have an entirely different quality, as might forgiveness. If we think of our God as a parent, and explore the simple ramifications of a more literal application of that title, all of the connotations of obedience shift. Elihu had suggested that perhaps our relationship to the divine is not transactional. We do not obey in order to secure blessings. God does not enjoin obedience because it affirms God's sovereignty. God does not bless us because we have earned the blessing. If these claims are true, then heavenly parents do not urge our repentance to assuage their injury. In the medieval church, the sinner had to give satisfaction to be forgiven, to compensate for the injury he had done to God. Clearly, in this view, God's only concern is for his own glory, not our welfare. Such a God would be the supreme narcissist. It is unclear if Elihu believes that God is simply too remote, too transcendent, or too removed from human concerns to be bribed or offended by mortal actions, or if he understands, as we should, that God's concern is a chosen, a willed, a gifted concern. The reality is that in our most loving relationships, we are injured because our love makes us vulnerable to injury. That is the truth about God's love. 
but only the parental nature of such love makes this clear. If my child disobeys my counsel, I am not, or not properly, angry. I do not react to protect my parental dignity. I am not jealous for my parental prerogatives. I am not concerned for my parental authority or honour or standing. I am saddened because in ignoring the counsel born of my love and wisdom, my child opens herself to harm, to pain, to disappointment. I do not stand ready to reward the child for obedience or to punish for disobedience. Her decision to follow the counsel redounds to her good and disobedience to her harm. This, however, is the key fact. Our relationship is not based in reciprocity. It cannot be, for the parent loves the child before the child is even cognizant of having a parent. He first loved us. And the child's affection for the parent becomes worthy of the name love only when it flows freely, independent of fear on the one hand and self-interest on the other. When Elihu queries, what harm does your sin do to God, or what benefit does he derive from your obedience, we must not take this to mean that our heavenly parents are indifferent to our sin or virtue. Rather, their concern is a consequence of their freely given love and expresses the vulnerability that all love brings in its own wake. God does not owe us blessings or gratitude and does not insist on punishment or retribution. God experiences joy in our growth and prosperity and they experience sorrow in our missteps and pain that follows because they chose to love us. There is no one-to-one -one relationship between our actions and our blessedness or suffering. As another prophet will write and Jesus will affirm, the sun shines and the rain falls equally on those perceived to be good and those perceived to be wicked. Obedience drawn out of us from fear is but slavery. Motivated by blessings, it is but economic calculation. Job and we are being taught that the motive for obedience must be love. And good parents, be they eternal or earthly, ask obedience for our benefit, not for their own. And if that is true, then the point of obedience is not that it is a litmus test of our servitude. Submission or rebellion is not the primary concern of an earthly parent whose interest lies in the well-being of the child. The problem with ignoring God's love-based counsel is that it short-circuits God's purpose behind those counsels, the growth in blessedness of the disciple. The early Christian Pelagius gave inspired advice that we should think of obedience as a response to loving counsel rather than to divine command. Consider then, I beg you, the great difference between counsel and command. The former invites you to do something. The latter threatens you if you fail to do it. Instances of this understanding erupt occasionally with unexpected tenderness, even in the Old Testament text. That thou mayest love the Lord thy God, and that thou mayest obey his voice, 
and that thou mayest cleave unto him, for he is thy life. <laughs> 